Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, this is The Koreafile, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... In part three of my conversation with conscientious objector, pacifist, and 1950s aid worker Joe Smucker, he discusses the paranoia and chaos that he witnessed in a country in the grip of a post-colonial and post-war reality. Plus, more on the Mennonites and their relationship with South Korea. But first... I recently received an email from a listener whose grandparents had also spent time on the peninsula during that post-war period. She had this to say. I stumbled across your interview with Joe Smucker, the man who works for a relief agency in Daegu in the 1950s. I thought I'd write in because my grandparents also worked in Korea around that time. My grandfather had studied agriculture at Texas A&M University and was employed by the State Department. He was sent to disaster zones to help them stabilize their agricultural systems. My grandmother, a brilliant woman, had been a teacher in Texas. She learned languages wherever they lived, something my grandfather could never master, as he couldn't shake his strong Texas accent. They lived in Ghana, Nigeria, and Palau before finally arriving in Daejeon in South Korea. At that point, it took a lot to really phase them, as they'd just been living in the South Pacific Islands, where there were still landmines from World War II on the beach, and rumors of Japanese soldiers still hiding out on remote islands in the area. My grandfather helped enhance terrace farming in South Korea, a vital task, because so many people were struggling to find enough food, and the harvest needed to be as plentiful as possible. The land had been ravaged by the war, and so many people were starving. A few things happened that were of note. Because of the rampant violence and theft in Daejeon, they lived in a house that was surrounded by a high fence and razor wire. In spite of the fence, my grandparents' pet Doberman was stolen, presumably from meat. They were never bitter about the theft because they saw the desperation happening around them. But I know it must have shaken them. They also had a spy placed in their home. While the Republic of Korea leaned heavily on the United States for support at the time, there was also a very understandable desire in the population to have a sense of what American workers were doing in Korea. Like most foreigners living there, my grandparents had a maid who helped with things like purchasing groceries. Once, they found her rifling through my grandfather's papers and later learned that she was actually the sister of the chief of police, suggesting that she was likely of too high a status to be a maid. They concluded that she'd been sent there to spy on them. From what I understand, while my grandparents and mother, who spent the early part of her childhood there, are proud to have been able to do their part to help South Korea heal from the Korean War and the Japanese colonial period, it was a time when they had very little privacy. They made friends with students there, who my grandmother tutored, but they knew that every action was being watched. The maid remained with them. They were very conscious of the fact that this was the nature of living in Daejeon at the time. Thanks to Joe and Eunice Cowan and to their granddaughter for sharing their story with the Koreafile podcast. And now, part three of my conversation with Joe Smucker. For nearly a century, the Mennonite Central Committee has been a relief, service, and peace agency representing many of the Mennonite, Brethren in Christ, and Amish churches of North America. Uh, What is a Mennonite? We often think of three peace churches. There are the Mennonites, there are the Quakers, and uh, there are the Brethren. Um, The Mennonites, of course, take their name from Menno Siemens, a former Catholic priest in the Netherlands who, during the Reformation, left the church and formed his own collection. They were known as Anabaptists because they refused infant baptism. This is key then, the Anabaptist aspect. That's right. Mennonites don't baptize infants. That's right. Uh, they, people make the decision for themselves when they're of an age that they can intellectually grasp exactly. that. Yeah. Um, so, born into this faith and your family must have gone back generations as Mennonites. They have. 
so being involved with the MCC was just part of your church life prior to finishing school back in the early 50s. Well, I knew that uh, having lived through the war, Second World War, and then the Korean War, etc., I knew that uh, I would take a stand as a CEO. Not everybody in our church Conscientious did. objector. Yeah, not everybody in our church did. It was sort of interesting. Uh, oftentimes in our church you would see uh, young men in uniform on furlough attending, sitting right next to the, the conscientious objector who was also on furlough. So, so ethically, I mean, ethically or religiously, what is the difference? Why would some young men decide, yeah, I'll join the army, and like your, others like yourself say, I'm making an ethical choice, or I'm making a Mennonite choice. Yeah. Why, for you, was that the, the choice? Well, the choices for me were taking the conscientious objector stand, but being active and doing something reconstructive. Now, there were those who took an absolute stand, saying... But they would not cooperate under any circumstances. Even doing relief work would be helping the government who had been at war. So this is an anti-state, anti-establishmentism in the Mennonite philosophy, and that's yeah. that's a radical Mennonite. That's right. And then other Mennonites had argued that, well, uh, you know, if we don't fight, then you know what what's going to happen to us? Which could which could mean jail or some other trouble with the government. Yeah. Yeah, my position was I'm willing to to serve in alternative service, as long as it's constructive service, as long as it doesn't involve killing, destruction, or what have you. And um, at the time, I was very idealistic, and I wanted to go to what I thought was the worst possible place that needed help. And at that time, it was Korea, because I had some kind of commitment to. Well, you know how you are when you're 22. So Korea was that place. MCC aims to take an active role in advocating for peace, both in North America and around the world, seeking to be a witness against forces that contribute to poverty, injustice, and violence. In the work you were doing in Daegu, how did these goals play out in the life you led and the work you did? We did not make any effort to proselytize. What we did when we had mass distributions, for example, we would gather the people together, we would announce where the goods came from, and we would also describe why we were sending the goods. That was as far as it went. We had made no effort. So people knew about the Mennonites. They knew what we were up to. Uh, and the goods were sent with a label that had this sort of emblem around which was the slogan in the name of Christ. So they knew it was a Christian organization, but we ourselves did not proselytize at all. And in this case, in the name of Christ is put there because Mennonites believe that Christ would be helping the poor. Right, yeah. yeah. The MCC was involved in the development of the IW Alternative Service Program, which you've kind of talked about before uh, as a military service alternative program in the U.S. starting in 1952. So were you under the IWASP, or was it a separate... Uh, no, it was, it was part of the what, what we call the alternative service. Um, so in yeah. World War II, prior to this being introduced, were Mennonites still able to claim conscientious objector status? Yeah. That was the case of my oldest brother, for example. 
Uh, he served as smoke jumper, jumping out of planes, parachuting into forest fires in Manitoba. In okay. Not Manitoba, in Montana, mm -hmm. uh, etc. So that was established during the Second World War. But you had to go through some pretty intense grilling to make sure you weren't just avoiding the draft. Prior to that, in the First World War, that did not exist. So if you did not serve, you were put in prison. The Mennonite Church is a pacifist church. So what did that mean for you growing up? And what does it mean to you as an adult? Well, for me, it meant uh, nonviolence. Uh, it meant uh, trying to be of service without violence especially in war. Uh, I don't personally believe that you can simply retreat and do nothing and say I'm a conscientious objector. You have to be doing something. Mm -hmm. So for me it meant uh, being active without serving in, uh, in the military. And, and, and as, a, as an adult being a pacifist as a sort of moral philosophy, what does that mean? I think what it means is you do everything you can to, to reconcile uh, people in uh, opposite positions. You do what you can to try to instill uh, a sense of uh, uh, cooperation, a sense of peace, uh, and uh, that requires taking action that demonstrates that you know this can work. And uh, I had some pretty solid beliefs that. Uh, that's what I should be doing in Korea, that somehow doing that would illustrate that there's an alternative to simply battling each other. After, you know, looking back on the three years, do you feel that you lived to what you wanted to be perceived as, or...? I, I guess at the time I was just committed to that. Th there was such a push, you know, the Americans had to show their might, and there was such a push to you know, be active to prove that America was you know, protecting the world, etc. And I didn't share that, but I did believe that something had to be done, that there was another way, that the issue was you should be helping people, you shouldn't be destroying them. Uh, and that was sort of the more simple guiding principle I had at the time. Fifty years later, the Koreas are a peninsula that could use some reconciliation. Do you agree? Oh yes, and I, I follow the, the issue all, through all these years and it, it, I'm just appalled by the fact that it still remains divided and the divisions seem even greater than they were uh, when I was there. Why, why do nations keep division or why, why, why do nations have an inability to see eye to eye? Well, I think it's an issue of, uh, of control and dominance. You know, the wish to control resources for your own economies. Expansion often comes as a way to protect your interests. We can see that happening uh, in Asia now with China, for example, uh, expanding out uh, and the U.S. getting worried. It's difficult for nations to simply be, you know, they're constantly uh, worried about protecting their best interests, and oftentimes the expansion of nations is thought to be necessary to protect their own interests. That's the Korea file for this week. 
You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher, and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Seoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Korea File there too, and on Twitter at The Korea File, with daily links and current news about the peninsula. And please rate us on iTunes. Each review helps new listeners discover the show. Music on this episode, Miarigo, is from the 1960s trot star, Dan Jung Hee. Then, check back wherever you downloaded this podcast on October 12th for a conversation with Pepperdine University's Rebecca Kim about her research on South Korea's Evangelical University Bible Fellowship and their strange reverse racist mission work on American and Canadian college campuses. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet.